Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Uh, Today I invite you to open up your Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 6. Uh, we're continuing in our series, Merciful, Merciful, or Messy People, Merciful God, uh, where we look at the mess that the people are in the book of Judges and that need uh, for God's mercy as we direct ourselves towards the cross. And today we're centering in on the person Gideon. Uh, Gideon shows up and he's the first of the judges that takes on a bit of the messiness of Israel. And we'll find that after, as this uh, chaos spirals out of control for Israel and sin gets deeper embedded that it's impacting the leaders as well. And we're not looking at the whole story of Gideon, uh, but mostly looking at what came to this new name that he has given. And to get there, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 16, uh, then we'll go to 25 to 32, and then catch just at the end um, that repetition of that new name that he is given. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them to the hands of the Midianites, because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites... Amalekites and other eastern peoples would invade their country. They camped out on the land and ruined crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished, the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove you, I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press and keeping it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors talked about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength. You have, or go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. 
The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites together. Skipping ahead a few verses here. Verse 25, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, take down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer a second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did the, as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pulled beside it and the second bull sacrificed on this newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to try save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day, they gave Gideon the name Jerob Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. And turning now to Judges 8, verse 28 to 29, looking at the very end of the section of Gideon. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had the peace for 40 years. Jerob Baal, son of Joash, went back home to live. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, what are the, the character traits? What, what are the things about you that you want to stand out when people think back to who you are? In the Bible, one of the ways that we look at how people are remembered is actually in the names that they have and in the names that they're given. These aren't just arbitrary names that the people have, but these are telling what is at the essence of the person what is at the essence of their, their character and what defines them as a person? For instance, looking at different characters in the Bible, we have Adam right in the beginning. And Adam can be translated also as man or, or as humankind. And we find that Adam represents all of humanity, especially in his fall into sin. We look at other characters like Joshua that comes right before the book of Judges. Joshua means the Lord saves or God delivers, and he is the one, through God's help, delivers the people into the promised land. Or we have even in the more minor characters uh, in the, the book of Ruth, 
Naomi's two sons, who die very early in the story, can basically be translated as sicky and weaky. Um, not great names to go with uh, if you're expecting them to be strong people. Um, the names are meant to tell us something about the nature of that person and how they are remembered. I guess one more really famous name that I want to point out is the name of Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber. But later on in his life, he's given a new name, which is Israel. Israel meaning wrestles with God. And of course, this, this name comes to Israel, comes to Jacob, after this famous encounter that he has with a person where he wrestles the stranger for a whole day, and afterwards he discovers that it was God whom he was wrestling with. And it's from there that he is given this new name, this new identity one who wrestles with God. And this is an important story because, of course, it's not, just, it's not just Jacob who takes on this new name, but this name is of Israel. Israel takes on this name and all of the significance that comes with it. It's part of their identity. It tells us something about who God's people are and how they're characterized. They are people who are constantly contending with what does it mean to follow God faithfully. And this sort of identity that God's people have doesn't stop with the end of the Old Testament. This carries on. Each person is called not just to take on what has been handed to them, but to wrestle with it. I think I've mentioned this before for our call in our church and passing things on to the next generation. We don't just take God's word and plant it right back down and just say, follow this exactly as we have, but we invite the other people to wrestle with it, to make it more and more their own so that they can pass it on to the next generation and they can wrestle with it and own it for themselves as well. And this should be important to us in this story because we have another story of a person with two names, one that's given to them a little bit later. We have the character Gideon. Uh, Gideon means mighty warrior uh, as God, or the, the messenger from God, comes to him. He says, greetings, mighty warrior, uh, in reference to that aspect of his name and his identity. But later, we'll find that he is given this other name, Jerubbaal the one who contends with Baal, or let Baal contend with him. At its core, it's suggesting a change in how Gideon is going to be remembered. Gideon's not being remembered in his rightful place as one who is primarily contending with God, the true God of Israel, but his identity is more in the other direction towards Baal. Now, as the story goes, when we go to the end of the story, this name gets brought back up. This is part of who he is at the very end of his life as well. It seems that Baal, in the end of the story, really does contend with him and captures his heart and his imagination. And this, this story isn't just a fun story about how this guy got a new nickname, it's an important detail about the essence of who Gideon is. He is also Jerob Baal, someone who is supposed to be directed towards God, but is left contending 
with Baal. Uh, the passage might have us reflecting on that question that we started with. How are we to be remembered? Are you to be remembered for, for knowing God, for contending with God and wanting to follow him faithfully? Or are you someone contending with the idols of the world and the pull that they can have on us, more like Israel or Jerob Baal? Now, I, I bring this up also because this touches on the, one of the major themes in the book of Judges. Judges is all about the right worship of God. That's central to what they're doing. Proper worship of God as the person, as the, as the God who is to be worshipped exclusively. It is right to worship God who leads to this true living into the wholeness that they were meant to. It is the right worship of God that leads them to this courageous living into the land as they were meant to live. We are meant to be people who follow him. We can, we can think back to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and how the Ten Commandments begin. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, the, the early commandments, if you keep reading, make it very clear. Uh, what, what these commandments are about isn't just about being nice. It's not about just being nice moral people here. The first commandments have nothing to do with how we treat other humans, but it's directed towards God. First and foremost, there are to be no gods in competition with our God. The God alone is to be worshipped. And this is repeated throughout the Old Testament in many different ways. One of these primary ways is that when they come into the land, they're supposed to remove all the idols of the foreigners living around them. They are supposed to be, take deep care in making sure that they're not trying to worship God alongside all of these other idols as we find in chapter 6 of Judges here. If this breaks down, the consequences were very clear. God would honor their agreement that they no longer needed God. He would show them what it's like to not have God protect them. Other armies and peoples would invade their land, and they would see their utter need and dependence on them. Our passage begins with the Midianites swarming in like locusts. There's this an effect on the land. It's no longer livable in itself. And the root of the problem is not necessarily that these Midianites had come in and invaded and made it so difficult. The root of the problem was regarding proper worship. Look at how it plays out in Judges chapter 6. If this was about, if this wasn't about worship, if this was about like the physical bondage to the Midianites, then all God would have to do is send a judge to rescue them from the Midianites, but that's not the first step that we find. Instead of a judge, God first sends a prophet. God's diagnosis is not that they simply need someone to rescue them out of their situation, but they need someone to speak God's truth to them. Looking at what the prophet says in chapter 6, verse 8. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued from the hands of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. That sense that God is the one that enabled them to live into that peace, that gave them the promised land. And then I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Notice what the prophet names in here. It's that turning back to that first commandment. He wants to point out that this is not just about feeling the oppression from other people. This is about a failure of worshiping the one true God. Turning to our own devices to bring salvation rather than turning to God. Uh, looking at Gideon's response in verse 13, we see Gideon's failure to see the depth of their spiritual condition and only looking towards his, his own physical comfort or discomfort. This, this blinds Gideon from seeing what the true issue actually is. It blinds him from seeing God's messenger who is there right in front of his face. He's so fixated on his immediate situation that when God shows up and offers a blessing, he responds, pardon me. Uh, pardon me. If, if the Lord was with me, uh, life wouldn't look like this. Gideon's response is one that's consistent with one that's used to worshiping Baals or Asherah or the idols of the day. The region of that day or the religion of the day was all about the manipulation of the other gods to get the things that you wanted. You knew that you were successful in, in offering something to Baal if you offered it to Baal and then you experienced that victory. It wasn't about conforming yourself to the truths of the one true God, but manipulating these gods to get what you want. And you can see Gideon's working under these assumptions. He hasn't been able to manipulate the true God properly, so the evidence is that God is not truly with us. He doesn't quite understand that our God will not be manipulated, that rather than getting this God of Israel to conform to his desires, he was supposed to be rooted in this unchanging truth that God brings. Which, by the way, uh, Gideon's treatment of God isn't that far from how we often come before God. Many people in the midst of distressing times maybe will hear this, this message of assurance that, that God is actually with us. But we might feel like answering how Gideon answers. One of these pardon me type moments. Uh, pardon me, but if God was with us, then this wouldn't be happening. If God was actually with us, the world wouldn't look like this. This sort of response is something that we can expect from people who have begun to worship something else, that are so concerned with their own comfort, their own safety, that they do not see the fundamental turning that's happened from the true God. They no longer see the depth of sin in the world. Proper worship isn't on Gideon's 
mind. It's not even on his radar. It's all about manipulating the gods to get rid of the Midianites, to get rid of the thing that's right in front of us. Now, sometimes we're a little bit like the people of Israel in Judges, where we're often found calling out because we're experiencing the symptoms of sin. And we want those symptoms removed. We want these bad things removed from our life. But we need this reminder of this deeper need that we have in coming before God. And this is something that we've been acknowledging as we've been repeating our prayer of confession and assurance these past few weeks. In our confession, we speak these words. We are lost in a world of pain and suffering. When we put our faith in our own resources, we often feel the ache of our true needs. This line points out the, the ache that we feel in the world, how this is meant to draw us to our deeper need of God. It calls us to be a people who may have made idols of ourselves. We rely on our own abilities to, to make us happy. We rely on our own efforts to get us out of these tough situations, to solve our problems, to save ourselves. Yet when we find these situations are bigger than what we can handle, we feel the ache of not being able to solve all things. And we are called then, not just to get rid of the ache, but to redirect ourselves towards God. The next line in our confession says, the next, or, when we put our hope in the health of our bodies, we suffer pain and find no healing. That, that line is there, and it's meant to acknowledge the simple reality that we also cannot have our ultimate hope in our health. Despite the promise of modern medicine to solve all things, we still have people who suffer long-term illness and people still die. If we make an idol out of our health, challenges to health can blind us from seeing God's presence where we are. It's a line that acknowledges that we cannot save ourselves. We need God. And we train ourselves to say, this world is full of brokenness and pain and death. And these things have us clinging to the things that we think that we can control our own resources, our own health. But ultimately, these things cannot save us. We need God. The best part of the confession assurance, at least in my opinion, um, is the assurance. The assurance is that God promises forgiveness for all who turn to him. We have a Savior who has died on the cross, has risen from the dead, who by his works we are set free. We don't need to turn to our own abilities, our own health, but salvation is freely offered in Christ. We are reminded of our idolatry of the times where we try to use ourselves or something else in place of God to save us. When we see that need for repentance, we turn to Jesus, knowing that through him we are offered full and complete forgiveness when we turn to him. Every Sunday, we have this time of confession and assurance, and we do this not just for tradition's sake. It reminds us that the problem isn't that we are bad people and that we need to do better or be better, but that we are sinful 
and we need salvation. We are reminded each week that our comfort is not in our own strength, that we are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the people of God will always have this tension of being um, feeling the same things that the people of Israel was identified by. We are a people who wrestle what it means to be authentic followers of God in every different age, in every new generation. There will always be this temptation for us to be characterized by the idols that we have around us. And as I've already alluded, um, idolatry can be a particularly hard thing for us to see. It's not as easy as this altar that's made for Baal. The, the idols in our culture can be a little more hidden, but they're still there. Uh, one of the ways that we can see our idols is seeing the places where we invest our meaning. What are the places of deepest meaning for us? But even that can be a little bit hard to see. So to be able to see where our deepest meaning is, it might be helpful to ask, where are our deepest fears? Our fears point to our places of meaning and the potential places of idolatry. Perhaps we could take it even one step further. If we're looking at what our deepest fears are, we can also be looking at where our strongest reactions are. The subjects where anger surfaces, perhaps. We do well in remembering that idolatry is not just in money or sex or power, but it's anything that takes this ultimate meaning or security in our lives. So looking for the potential idols in our lives, we could ask this question. What makes us so upset that we can hardly go on living until we set it right? What makes us so upset that we can hardly go on living until we set this one thing right? In that way, the last two years has been a season of revealing potential idols in our own lives. Maybe we've seen it in ourselves, this overwhelming desire to control what's going on around us, this need for every person to agree with you regarding what's going on in the news, to the point that it's putting strain on our relationships. Whether it's the protection of our bodies, issues surrounding vaccines, our personal freedoms and concerns around the government, it appears that there are potential idols in our backyard that we need, need to contend with. And the question goes deeper for us, too. The question points to, then, are we able to see the spiritual brokenness that we live in the midst of? Do we respond like Gideon when God gives us promises of blessings and we say, pardon me, but this doesn't look like how I pictured your blessings. It doesn't look like you are here with us now. Now, remember how Gideon was someone that was to be characterized and defined as someone in Israel. He was supposed to be someone that was characterized as one that wrestles with God, but instead, he's defined by contending with idols. 
Now, we are called to be those who contend with God. We'll always feel the pull of idols around us, but we're not characterized by fighting those idols, but in our movement towards God. Uh, An image that this passage has had me reflecting on is one from um, Ephesians, this image of putting on the armor of God. I'm reminded of our call to be people in Christ who stand firm. Uh, Looking at the book of Ephesians, it talks about how we're saved by grace. It, It fully recognizes how in the midst of our messiness, we need a merciful God that saves us. We need a God to step in and do what we can't do for ourselves. But it also has no problem in recognizing that we still need this encouragement for believers to stand firm in Christ. Ephesians 6 has this famous passage of putting on the armor of God. And we recognize the Christian walk we have this call for standing firm against the powers of the day. But that this equipping that God gives is not about going out and entering into the enemy territory. We're not defined by those powers of the day, but it's about standing firm in our walk with Christ, in pursuing a life of holiness through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So I want to finish today by reading uh, just three verses that introduce the armor of God here. And as I read these three verses, I want you to prayerfully consider potentially where are the idols in our lives? Are there any things that sit particularly prominent in your life where meaning might be coming from? Where our fears are most deeply felt? And to offer these before Christ. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Let's pray. Lord, may we be a people who are defined in seeking you, in our wrestling to understand who you are. May we stand firm as those who are found firmly in Christ, when there are so many things that contend for our meaning in our lives, where so many deep fears that we may be holding, we pray that we are not defined by contending with idols. Remind us that these do not have the last word, but you do. Thank you for showing us in the book of Judges the extent of your mercy that you are able to work with messy people like Gideon and still work out the rescue of your people through him. May this give us confidence in the work that we have set before us, not that we will always get it right, 
but that you will continually show us that you can bend things to your good purposes even when we mess up. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.